Welcome to HarperCollins Presents. This is Aaron Wicks with HarperCollins. I recently spoke with Alex Christie, the author of Gutenberg's Apprentice, on sale September 23, 2014. While every student in Western culture grows up to know the story of Gutenberg and his printing press, Gutenberg's Apprentice gives a fictional account of the other men responsible for the making of the first printed book, men who have been largely silenced by history. In the novel, we meet Johann Gutenberg, a brilliant and tormented genius, Johann Fust, his shrewd financer, and Peter Schufer, his passionate apprentice. All have their ideas of what the press should be and their own stakes in its first creation. And their conflict brings to life a story often told in a single sentence in history. The struggles of turbulent medieval Germany and the tensions between the brilliant minds and inventors behind the printing press are captured with beauty and suspense in Alex's novel. Before we speak with Alex, let's listen to an excerpt from the audiobook, narrated by Robert Petkoff. In this excerpt, Peter is now an old man and is asked by an abbot to recall the story of his involvement with Gutenberg and the first printing press. You are the only one who knows the truth, now that both Johans have been called home to God. Johann Gutenberg, he means, and Johann Fust. Peter Schaeffer's mind is clear, his fingers as strong as they have ever been. He's over 60 now, a father to four sons, and the wealthy founder of the greatest printing house in all of Germany. A lean, tall man, he wears a close-cropped silver beard on his narrow, sober face. The truth. He smiles. Much has been said in the decades since, but almost none of it is true. They've practically canonized the man who found this wondrous art. How Gutenberg would laugh if he could see them from above, or else below. The final disposition of the master's soul is far from certain. They say he died in penury, abandoned and betrayed. The abbot's voice turns hard. Well, Peter Schaeffer knows the charge, that it was he and Fust, his foster father, who wrenched the Bible workshop from the master and robbed him of his whole life's work. For years he's borne the slander of this heinous accusation. It is a lie. His voice is clipped. He died a member of Archbishop Adolf's court, highly praised and well attended. While your own firm went on and prospered, Success, dear brother, is no crime. He gives the monk a piercing look. Betrayals there were, certainly, but not how people think. Then there's a tale to tell indeed. The abbot moves toward the window where he stays a moment, lost in or feigning thought. His plain black habit hangs on his large frame like fabric on a birdcage. We have a duty, don't you think? Tritemius looks back, a duty to the past and to the future? Though more than thirty years have passed, Peter is loath to blacken the master's name. Deep down, he still must love the madman, Gutenberg, that burning, brutal genius who tore down as much as he created, who took the credit, always, regardless of whether it was due. He conceived the craft and forged the metal letters before anybody else. This none could reasonably deny. But without Peter and his father, that great Bible would never have been made. 
Alex, thanks for sitting down with me today. Thank you so much for asking me. So my first question is regarding these characters that you have in your book, because when we normally think of the printing press and the first printing press, we think of Gutenberg, and we don't think of these other men that were involved in the process. So I'm wondering, how did you stumble on the story, and how much of it is fact? It's a good question. I... It, like most people, I had never heard of Peter Schoeffer or Johann Flister, any of these people, and I had thought that printing was invented by Gutenberg, this great man. Personally, I'm a printer. I'm a letterpress printer. My grandfather was a printer. And so when I read, I read an article in 2001 in the New York Times that was about some research that had called into question what Gutenberg had actually invented, the t mm. how his types were made. And the headline in the, t in the Times article was, Has History Been Too Kind to Gutenberg? And I, being a printer myself, you know, it's been my hobby my whole life since I was 16. I was just intrigued, and I tucked it away. And, and then, as it happened, I moved to Germany. Um, and I started looking into it. And the real amazing occurrence was at the venerable bookstore The Strand in Manhattan. I came upon a monograph published in 1950 on this unknown printer named Peter Schuffer, to me unknown. And it turned out, as I did more and more research, that actually this book, this amazing first printed book, was not made by just this one man, which of course, if you think about it, couldn't be. Um, but a large collection, but particularly it was a collaboration of three men. And I like to think of it as um, the world's first tech startup because Gutenberg really performed the role of the inventor and the entrepreneur. Um, but he had a financier, he had a venture capitalist named Johann Fust. And then the third person was this unknown scribe who became actually a very famous printer in the late 15th century, uh, the world's really first major publisher and printer. He invented publishing, Peter Schiffer. Um, and he was a scribe. There are documents placing him at the Sorbonne in the 1430s. And he had some relationship to Johann Fust that people knew about. Um, and so for me, it was really just a process of delving deeper and deeper into this un unbelievable mountain of research um, and trying to piece together a kind of a story about how did this thing come about? How did this amazing 1,262-page book, you know, that was really the first printed book, I mean, there was a small school book printed first that was kind of the trial thing. How, how did it actually come about? And no one knows because those first, the years in which the Bible was printed in Mainz, which is a German city on the Rhine, there is no documentary evidence at all from 1450 to 1455. So it's kind of a fiction writer's dream. This amazing thing happened, but how did it happen? Who did what? It was really a, a process of deduction from the known facts, of which there are not many. So what are some of those facts? What were the bare bones that you had to work with? The main thing that's been known for centuries, really, is that these three men were involved, because if you go back to some of the oral songs that were sung along the rhyme, and, and even early paintings, there are always these three men. If you, it's interesting. Um, Schoeffer was very often considered his lackey, Gutenberg's lackey, like this young boy apprentice. Um, and what happened was there's one document that proves that Johann Fust lent all this money to Johann Gutenberg to do what they called the work of the books. They didn't even specify what that work was. The Bible was never signed. So the only thing linking Gutenberg and Fust to this project is this, this partial record of their lawsuit, because what happened is Fust sued Gutenberg to get the money back uh. at the very end. 
Um, and I'm not, I don't think giving away the story because in the beginning I have Peter telling his story to the abbot of uh, Sponheim, who is a real person, and he did, Peter did tell his story to this abbot of Sponheim in 1485, truly. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. And so there are these fragments of information. Um, the lawsuit for, for decades, if not centuries, uh, the consensus was that Fust ripped off Gutenberg that he stole his workshop right at the moment of his greatest triumph and he threw him into bankruptcy. That's been the standard narrative. It has been, I think, about 25 years since there's been lots of new research, mainly by legal historians, looking at this lawsuit document. And there's a French historian named Guy Bechtel who wrote this amazing book in 1992 that just kind of went through all the evidence and said, not so fast. It appears that probably Gutenberg was kind of I won't say running a Ponzi scheme, but, you know, he was borrowing money. His goal was to perfect his invention, and he didn't really pay that much attention. He wasn't a very good manager, I don't think. And he owed the money. He never contested the lawsuit. He walked away from the whole thing. Interesting. So for me, the whole thing was, wow, these three people came together, did this incredible thing, and then the whole thing blew up in court. We know that the Bible was presented at the Frankfurt Fair, in 1454, we have the eyewitness testimony of a, a man who would later become Pope Pius. Wow. Who actually saw, you know, a few choirs, he said. And a choir is just a signature. You know, it's 20 pages, five folded sheets. And so, you know, there are these things that have bubbled up over the last 20 or 30 years. And then the other piece of evidence that to me was really solidified my belief that Gutenberg could not have done this alone was um, Peter Schiffer celebrated in 2003, it was the 500th anniversary of his death. And his little town of Gransheim, where he was born, um, they had a centenary, and they translated this book that I had found at the Strand into German. It had never been translated into German. And a fantastic bibliographer named Monica Esterman wrote a really amazing introduction in which she said, Peter Schiffer was the artistic genius behind the Bible. He knew how to make letters, he had this entire calligraphic training and background. He had this relationship with Fust. So let's not sell these two men short. You know, they had a really, it wasn't, Gutenberg did not do this alone. He needed these two people to kind of bring his ideas to fruition. So for me, it was like a treasure hunt. It was really a lot of fun. And I'm a journalist by profession. And so it was really like, I found this amazing story. I stuck to it for many years through quite a bit of rejection. Um, because I just thought, this is such an incredible story, and it deserves to be told, you know, and it, people deserve to know what, that this was really a collective undertaking. I think that's really important, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, and when you think about it, you, you realize that, you know, with the machinery they're operating and all the different components that have to go into it, it makes perfect sense that it, it almost had to be a collaboration to have something so amazing come out of it. I, I think it's a, a really beautiful story in that way. Um, now, the, the book that you um, found the translation of at the Strand, what was that? That was a biography of Peter? Okay. And then you said that he actually did tell his story to this abbot. And now, was that his biography, or, or have you been able to read that? Is that still in existence? It's in existence. Alas, I do not read Latin. Um, uh -huh. But everything at the time, of course, the language of learning and of, of all 
actual transactions was Latin. But this abbot, his name was Trithemius, actually. They all took Latin names. But he, is, he was German. His name was John of Trittenheim, actually. And he, he was quite young. He was a, a whole generation younger than Peter. And he sort of, he became a Benedictine abbot in this little tiny uh, monastery not far from Mainz and took it upon himself to write chronicles and histories of the region. Because it was a time, the 15th century, they still could put all of the world's knowledge in one book, you know? And there was this ambition to summarize everything that had happened in civilization in a book. And so he would wanted to do that for the Rhineland, and he wrote several. Um, and one of the things that he covered in this was the invention of printing. He wrote the Annals of Hearsau. I won't try to say it in Latin. Um, I think he wrote it in about 1510. So he wrote it when he was quite old, and he was remembering that he had met Peter Schiffer. He said, I met Peter Schiffer 30 years ago, and he told me about this invention. And he told me it was this man named Gutenberg, and it was this man named Fust. And Peter Schiffer, they had started doing this printing, and they ran into terrible difficulties. It was really hard. And then after they had printed three choirs, Peter Schiffer thought of a faster way to make the letters. So this is a very important piece of documentary evidence for his role in the making of the Bible. You know, And people had dismissed this guy, because he got a lot of other things wrong in his chronicles, you know. But actually, I've, I've had really tremendous uh, good fortune to work and do research with the two leading scholars of early printing in the world. One is in London, a woman who was the former deputy keeper of the British Library named Lotta Hellinger. She's great. And, and Paul Needham, who is a scholar of the Bible and of early printing at Princeton. And I've discussed this with both of them. And I think that, you know, if you're, re if you're remembering a conversation that happened 30 years ago, you know, you might get a few details wrong. But the gist of it was this guy, Peter Schiffer, and Peter Schiffer himself, after making that transition from a scribe, there's evidence, uh, actually a colophon that he wrote in his incredibly beautiful handwriting on a, on a work of Aristotle, which I start the book with, actually, uh, when he was in Paris. He was working in the scribal workshops at the Sorbonne, and then for whatever reason, in 1455, he shows up in Mainz in this lawsuit. So the whole question is, who did what, when, you know? And um, it seems quite clear that he had the skills to make the type. And he became a very celebrated punch cutter. He was one of the people who was known for making beautiful types. And his son and his grandson followed after him. Um, and he had a, he founded a printing dynasty, you know, and, and was was really a major printer. He was eclipsed by other printers later, but he was the first major printer because Gutenberg, for all of his creative inventiveness, he was a I would say more of an inventor and a tinkerer than a businessman for sure. And he he was not really connected to books in that way. It, it wasn't his livelihood. Before he came to the Bible, he invented this crazy machine for polishing stones, and he had this business in Strasbourg making mirrors that pilgrims would hold up to catch holy rays from relics. So he was he was an entrepreneur, you know, not necessarily. I think history has packed everything needed to make the Bible on this one guy, and he wasn't. Nobody could do all those different things that are required to bring a book, as you say. I think there were probably 18 to 25 people in that workshop. It's incredible. I, I love how you break it down into the, the details of the process so that we truly understand how remarkable it was for the time, how mind-blowing it was. We're so used to, we take books very for granted, I think, often in our culture. Now, is this a lot of that based on research that you did? 
Or is that based on your own letterpress work? Well, there's two things, I think. It's fundamentally, if I weren't a printer, I wouldn't have been so fascinated with understanding how they did it, like the mechanics of how they made those letters and how they printed them onto the sheepskin or the calfskin. Um, so certainly being a printer is the reason I, w- I wanted to describe for people how it... I wanted to figure out for myself a plausible timeline. Hilary Mantel says we writers of historical fiction stand on the shoulders of giants, which are the actual researchers and historians, and in this case, bibliographers, you know, who, and there's a lot of debate about this, and that's why it's a novel. Um, It's my attempt to imagine how every little piece that we know might form a coherent story, you know, how these people came together, how they managed to produce this book in that moment, in that time, which was a time of tremendous change and conflict. Hilary Mantel is one of my great heroes, um, and the other thing she said is she thinks all, all authors should be born Catholic, um, which I thought was an interesting comment when she said it, but I was raised Catholic, and even though I don't practice any longer, it helps so much to understand that world, because I think that we have no ability now to really understand what it was like to live in a pre-enlightenment world where the maker and the creator controlled all of our destinies. And that's the world they lived in. So you have to understand everything that happened in that framework, you know. And I think it's hard to imagine how they saw it as blasphemous, but it was magical. In the same way that to me an iPod is magical. We understand now technically, okay, it's codes and O's and ones and you know, but it's still magical, but it's not so terrifying. I think for them it was terrifying because they had a very strong sense of what man's place in the universe was. And they were very concerned about overreaching. You know, that's the whole story of Adam and the fall from grace. You know, man should not attempt to be God. Um, We now, today, I think it's a really interesting philosophical question that, for me, I thought about a lot while writing this, and especially writing Peter, who's a very devout guy, um, is just because we can make something, should we? And is technical progress always good? And certainly the world we live in, we can see the, the technical progress is taking us kind of to the brink. To me, that was the interesting thing about the parallels between then and now. Is we live in these hinge times where we have this amazing technology that changes everything. And it's, it's scary because we don't know the consequences of what that will bring. Um, and I think Peter felt that. I really, that's why for me, I am a book lover. I'm a printer. I have had my reservations about ebooks from the beginning. Um, I understand now, though, that it, the, what the role they serve. Yeah, it's interesting. The first few pages, I feel like, can almost be applied to the debate about ebooks versus print and the digital revolution and people's fears. You know, if, if you strip out the, the specifics about a printing press, it could be applied to today. Was that an intention and a clear parallel you saw from the start? Or was it something that just organically kind of became part of it because it's, it is part of our lives today. It came as I was writing, um, as I got to know Peter better, and I began to understand kind of his tug-of-war between the old and the new, which was also sort of the tug-of-war between the two men, uh, his two father figures. But what I realized also about him was that 
I wanted him to be able to stand back a little bit and look at what had happened. And in the same way that we are now 20 years into our technological revolution. I lived in San Francisco in 1995 when Windows 95 was, you know, I was there for the first dot-com boom. And I, I know the waves that we've ridden. And I wanted him to be in a similar position, to be able to look back a little bit at what they had done. And that is one of the reasons I chose to have him talking to Trithamius in these little chapters that are spread throughout the book, just to be able to, have to look back at the impact of the technology and say, wow, we didn't know this is what was going to happen. And actually, you know, 30 years after the invention of the printing press, things started to go a little bit strange. You know, there was censorship because the, the church kind of figured out that this might not be such a great thing for their authority. And a lot of the books that were made were garbage. They were badly printed, you know, and the, and the scribe and the perfectionist and Peter was horrified. And a lot of scholars were horrified because kind of anybody could be a printer. It's kind of like self-publishing. Anybody could put out their work. And so there was this whole debate about debasing the book and cheapening the book. So that was one of the reasons I chose after a long time to put in that framing narrative because I thought it was important to give him an opportunity to comment and reflect on their invention. Interesting. I'd like to talk a little bit more about letterpress. And for you, um, having your own letterpress and working in letterpress, why do you think that it's important to carry on a very traditional and kind of what's often thought of as old-fashioned form of printing today when we do have e-books, or at least, you know, and books that can be printed, you know, on demand very quickly? Where, what is the beauty that you find in that? I think it's a really good question. It's something I've thought about a lot. I mean, I started printing at 16 as a hobby because my grandfather was a type founder. He was the foreman of the great San Francisco type foundry, Mackenzie and Harris, and he, he knew all the greatest printers of the 20th century in San Francisco, and that was how they made books up until 1960, you know, before Offset came in. So I loved the tactile aspect to it. Um, I'm not a visual artist, I'm a writer, and I like words, and so for those of us who can't draw or paint, you know, you can create beauty with letters, you can create beauty with images that you, you lock up in a chase and put in a press and ink, and so for me it was a fabulous way to express my creativity just as a person. The thing that I find extremely interesting is I have, a, my press is a 1910 Chandler and Price letter press, and it weighs about two tons. So it lives in San Francisco, and I live in London, um, and I lend it out to younger printers. I don't want to sell it because I want to keep it with me forever, but there's this huge renaissance in letterpress and in handmade things in general. But I think the reason that people, particularly I think digital natives and people in their 20s and 30s now, have this incredible hunger for stuff they can make with their hands, you know? And there are a lot of reasons. I don't think it's just sort of a romance of the obsolete. I really don't. I think that we are human beings, but we are creatures. We are animals. We're surrounded kind of by cheap products, mass products made overseas, very flimsy, shoddy things. And at the other side, where you know we live in this digital realm that's very immaterial, and I think that we are—we really need that to be human. Actually, we need physical contact to well-made things, and people respond to beauty. It's amazing to me. Um, I've just been really, really as I've done the work to try to spread the word about this book, and I've discovered how many book arts programs there are around the world. I mean, it's unbelievable, and it's like Etsy. You know, all these people want to make stuff. You know, the maker movement, 3D printers. 
people need to touch things. Science has done some research now about how we learn, you know, and there's a growing body of research that we learn better if we touch and if we have a physical, spatial relationship with things, like particularly with printed books versus ebooks, there's been quite a bit of um, MRI research. And actually, people retain information better. It imprints more deeply into their mind if they read it in a physical book. Because I personally, I, I know myself, when I am trying to remember a quote, I visualize where it was on the page. And I just think, that's amazing. That's, that's what Peter Schiffer was doing 500 years ago, you know, when he was channeling the word of God through his body. And so I just, I love that. I mean, I think that there's just this tremendous continuity of us as human beings on this planet making stuff. And we, that's what humans do is make stuff. And, you know, we like to feel it. I agree. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about the trajectory of your research because this um, is happening in the 1400s, clearly before there was a lot of books. <laughs> and so what were some of the challenges you encountered? What were some of the amazing discoveries that you made? And also, um, what do you think was only made possible? Um, what discoveries could you, you only really make today? What are kind of some of the new technologies that have allowed us to know? I think, I think you were, had talked somewhere else about, um, you know, new technology allowing you to see when something was printed or how it was printed. Yeah. I'm very curious about this. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary kind of journey, I would say. And I have been writing fiction maybe 15 years now, mostly contemporary fiction things and stories. And, and I didn't expect to write a book about something that happened 500 years ago, really. But I was so seized by curiosity. You know, when I discovered this character, Peter Schiffer, he really came to me very strongly right, right from the beginning. And I just wanted to figure out what had happened in those five years, like this blank of history that is so important. And I'm fortunate because I speak German and I speak French. And those are the two languages that all of the research is in. And you couldn't write this book if you didn't speak German, you know. And I was also fortunate that I moved to Germany at the key moment. My, my husband is German. And we lived in Berlin for the five years that I researched this book. So I think of it actually as a spiral. It's like you write a draft, you begin groping for the characters in the story, and then you realize you don't know enough. And you have to go another layer deeper. And you write some more, and then you go another layer deeper. And, you know, I wrote many drafts of this book, and I, I went back many times to the material. I spent a huge amount of time in archives, and particularly in the, in the State Library in Berlin, um, you know, pouring over the unbelievable, I mean, a mountain of material about Gutenberg. You can't believe how much research there is. And for the last two centuries, you know, of scholars, and gradually, gradually getting more refined, getting, getting more detailed. And the thing that is so interesting is that, and I think the reason that I could write this book, um, where 30 years ago people couldn't have, is that because of computer technology, they have been able to analyze the books themselves. So the bibliographers always analyze the books, but with their eyes, you know, and they, they collated them and they compared different versions and they tried to figure out. Now what they did at, at UC Davis, they actually analyzed the inks. And they could tell from the composition of the metal in the ink how much copper and how much lead was in each particular page. They could plot out which pages were printed on the same day with the same ink. There had already been a projection schedule that was put together in, in 1923 by this guy named Paul Schwenke. And um, I was using that as my basis. And then 
these um, using spectrometry, I think it was called, they were able to just really refine it and say, okay, we know that. And, and from there, you know, the papers, Paul Needham at, at Princeton had analyzed the papers and the watermark, so they knew how many papers were used at what time, because they, they ran out of paper and they had to buy some more. All of this incredible detail, they, they are able to match now because of technology. It's a tremendous irony, really. You know, the books are, can speak and tell them so much more about when they were made and with what paper. And then you can say, oh, they used that paper up the river. And then, you know, the scholars have had a field day in the last 30, 40 years with that stuff. And the other thing that happened, I think, um, that I thought was really, for me, most important was this introduction that was written about Peter Schiffer that came out in 2003. That was the moment that I thought, this is an amazing story. And I couldn't believe no one had ever told it. That was the thing that amazed me. There have been a lot of novels written sort of about Gutenberg in German and one in English, but, you know, they're very much the old story. You know, this kind of old guy who had this brilliant idea and then his unscrupulous banker kicked him in the teeth. That's the standard narrative about Gutenberg, and I think it's plain wrong, you know. I know most scholars, if you look now at the literature, everyone agrees that this is a ridiculous uh, description of what happened, and... I just think it's great to bring them out of their shadow, and I had a great time doing it. I mean, my children were like, Mom, if we have to go into another Gothic cathedral, I'm going to die. You know, I became somewhat obsessed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's apparent because it's just, you're fully immersed when you're reading it. Did you go to Mainz yourself and actually experience that? I've been there two or three times, I think. I've been to Frankfurt as well, and it's a sad, sad thing that the wars of really from the Napoleonic Wars to the Second World War, you know, that part of the world has been shelled and burned and shelled, and there's not much left of medieval mines, sadly. The wooden gate is still there, you know, and, and there's lots and lots of beautiful imagery from the period. There's still wonderful woodcuts, you know, and I relied a lot on the artistic outpouring of all the artists, you know, wood carvers and, and um, printers who did beautiful renderings of what it looked like, because most of those medieval cities... Either In Germany, either they rebuilt them after the war, stone for stone, and you don't even know they're a replica, which is kind of surprising, or they just kind of have this mishmash. But I did, you know, I was able to... I feel like I lived in that town, you know. I definitely... I, I wanted to create an entire world. And I also wanted to create as much of the world that really was. The journalist in me really wants the facts to be right without overreaching and saying this is how it was because no one knows how it was. This is my interpretation of how it might have been. Well, again, thank you so much. It's a fascinating read, and I really appreciate you talking with me today. Oh, it was a great pleasure. Thanks a lot. Herr Fust, a sharp, plained face, dark, probing eyes that did not look entirely pleased. I might have known it would be you. I would have sent you word, but my impatience was too great. Gutenberg just grunted and looked out behind them, peering with suspicion up and down the lane. He waved them in beneath one arm. Patience is for fools and saints. He slid the heavy bolt and turned to face them. Strangely, for a man of his high caste, he wore a long, dark, twisted beard. This is the son I spoke of. Fust nudged Peter forward. A ripple underneath the skin pulled the man's lips into a grimace. I don't see much resemblance. His eyes raked Peter. He has a name, this gifted scribe. 
Peter Sheffer, sir. He bowed his head. Already he knew how it would go. He'd been apprenticed twice before, the lowest of the low. I'd offer you a drink, but where the devil is Lorenz? The master of the house looked around testily. I'm in the thick of it. I can't... He broke off then and smacked his forehead with his hand. Forgive me, he said, giving Fust a rueful smile. Of course, I quite forgot that you might call. It's second nature now to keep stray eyeballs out. Yet they were hardly strays. If Peter understood it right, his father was this madman's financier. I thought it time that Peter saw your new technique, his father said. Instantly, the man's sharp face was inches from his own. Up close, his eyes weren't black as they had first appeared, but brown and flecked with topaz. His hair was wild and bristling to his shoulders, and his beard cascaded from his chin down his whole chest, glinting here and there like twists of wire. You'll swear to keep it secret first, upon your life. The breath that sprayed on Peter's face was rank. I swear, he muttered, and at that this Johann Gensfleisch, known as Gutenberg, spun quickly and began to lope down a dim hall. They followed through a door and out into a courtyard where, half-blinded, Peter saw the dark shape turn once more and bark, Your life! before it yanked the heavy stable door. You've been listening to HarperCollins Presents, the bi-weekly podcast from HarperCollins Publishers, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. This week we spoke with Alex Christie, author of Gutenberg's Apprentice, on sale September 23, 2014, and listened to excerpts from the audiobook, narrated by Robert Peckoff. Thank you for listening.